Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Joyce Vance, Kimberly Atkins Store, Jill Wine-Banks, and me, Barb McQuaid. Today, we'll be discussing the election interference indictment, a new attack on abortion rights in Alabama, and sexual assault on campus. As always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. And remember, go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our shirts, totes, and other goodies just in time for the late summer. We'd love to see you wearing our merch out and about. But before we dive in, I wanted to ask you guys about your favorite college town. I happen to be in Madison, Wisconsin right now as we're recording this in uh, what appears to be a soundproof booth from my echo. Um, and what a great what a great town this is. I've been here before, but I've had a chance to look around. And, you know, I, I always hold out Ann Arbor, Michigan, my, my hometown, my home of residence, as the greatest college town in America. And I still think it is, but wow, Madison sure is great. It's got a lot of the great things I like about Ann Arbor, but then it's got these beautiful lakes right in the middle of it. So I, I think it's amazing. How about you, Jill? What's, what's your favorite college town? I know you live in Evanston, which is also one of my favorites, but do you have other favorite college towns? Well, I do love the Evanston Northwestern campus because we're right on the lake there and it is beautiful. But I love every college campus because, well, I would say especially my law school, which is in New York City, a city that how could you not fall in love with? And being right in the center of it is fantastic. But so is anything that is a campus. There's something about the community of a college campus that just can't be beat the culture that they offer, the arts offerings they have, and just the dynamics of a student body. So I love all college campuses. What about you, Kim? So I, it depends on the definition of a college campus. I know my husband and I disagree about this, right? So I went to college in Detroit, in Boston, and in New York City. I am also a Columbia grad, go Lions. And to me, I had great college ex experiences in all of those cities. So those are college cities to me. But my husband says, no, no. A college town means a college, a town in really which revolves around a college. He even quibbles a little bit with Madison. He, he, he sort of grants that one because it's also the capital. And so there's other things going on there. But he's talking about, you know, like, like Durham or, you know, someplace that is just really um, focused on the college. I disagree with that. I think that Boston, Detroit, and New York City, I mean, especially Boston and New York, there's so many schools there. Columbia, NYU, Barnard, you know, Boston has two billion colleges and there's students everywhere. It's a vital part of the city. And so I think that it's great. So if I had to pick a college town, I'm going to go with Boston. I think that's the best one. What about you, Joyce? You know, I've never met a college town I didn't like. And, and Kim, I hate to side against Greg, but I'm totally with you on this one. You know, I grew up in Los Angeles. It is a college town, UCLA in the middle of the city, USC, where I spent some awfully happy summers at debate camp in the city, but still very much, you know, part of a college town feeling. But I think... Um, if I had to pick, my favorite one is actually Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I used mm. to go to debate summer camp, also in high school. Um, and there's just nothing as good um, as getting Elsie's, you know, at, at midnight and climbing back in, into your dorm. I actually really, really like that whole feel. Well, there's um, not a bad college town in America. You heard it there first. Maybe we can uh, take our next roadshow to uh, some of our favorite college towns. That sounds pretty great. Ooh, I love that. The Sisters-in-Law, the college town tour. We need to do <laughs> well, that. Well, we did that in Portland where I was able to visit my grand goddaughter at her college in Portland. 
because she's at Lewis and Clark there. Mm. And it is a gorgeous campus with amazing views of Mount Hood. So maybe I should have said that is my favorite campus. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. The third time's the charm, and I'm talking about Trump's third indictment. And since you've all heard so much detail about it this week, I want to take a different approach to talking about Trump's third indictment here. It's one that gets to Trump's conduct that poses the most serious threat to our democracy. It was made public, and he was arraigned this week, on four conspiracy counts, all of which have been so well reported and analyzed in MSNBC that today what I want to talk about is all of your unique perspectives on points that haven't been overly covered already. And I'm going to ask each of you three questions in three rounds. The first round is going to be things that surprised, shocked, or amazed you in the indictment or the arraignment. And I'm going to go last on this one. So who wants to start? Yeah, so there has been a lot of talk about the count for the deprivation of rights charge that uh, comes from the um, stems from the first Ku Klux Klan Act from the Reconstruction era, uh, which we've already talked about and how the facts are so fitting for exactly what happened on January 6th into the lead up of January 6th. And I wrote a column about it, which I'll put in the show notes. But one thing that I found while researching that statute is that it was originally drafted with a disqualification clause, which would have meant somebody convicted of it would not be able to run for office. But at the amendment stage, it was actually taken out for two reasons. One, some lawmakers expressed a view that it was too punitive because it would mean a greater punishment than for other crimes that they saw uh, that they thought were more serious, but also because federal prosecutors expressed a concern that they wouldn't get convictions if there was a disqualification Ooh. clause in there. And think about the time that this was happening, you know, Reconstruction. Essentially what they were afraid of is if, you know, Johnny, the Klan member, they don't, even if they don't like what, you know, the the violence he, he was doing, if he ran for sheriff, maybe they want to vote for him and that they wouldn't mm. convict him if there was a disqualification clause, which is just such a sad commentary. Um, and, and just considering now what that could mean was, was really something. That's such an interesting point, Kim. It really is. It goes to jury nullification that happens in a lot of cases where juries just refuse to accept either the penalty or the crime. Yeah. So, Joyce, do you want to go next? Yeah, you know, I have something that surprised me, and I wonder how y'all react. I was surprised that there wasn't a, a more robust inclusion of information that the government had obtained from Mark Meadows. I really thought for certain that he was going to emerge as a cooperator. And there is very little that we didn't already know attributed to him in this indictment it suggests that either the prosecution is completely holding back what they've got and he is cooperating, or I think more likely that he's just not engaging in fulsome cooperation. And I was very surprised by that. That one surprised me too. And Barb, what about you? Well, I think the thing that surprised me, but I now think is a stroke of genius, is the inclusion of only one defendant. 
It's United States versus Donald John Trump. There is not an, a charge indictment against the other six people who are identified as co-conspirators. Like I, I fully expected to see some of those people to be charged in this initial indictment. Part of it I was really looking for was to see who they were. And although Jack Smith has described six unindicted co-conspirators and described their conduct, and it, you know it's, it's illegal, they're all participating in these various conspiracies, he chose not to charge them. And my first reaction was to be a little bit puzzled, but as I've thought about it and I've read other people's theories on it, it strikes me as a stroke of genius. I mean, one is it's a shot across the bow, right? I'm sure they've already had conversations with these people, but now that you see in black and white what the allegations are, it's kind of one last chance to sign on as a cooperator. And even if they don't want to, I think it is an effort by Jack Smith to streamline this trial against Donald Trump and get it done before November of 2024. You know, a seven-defendant indictment is at least seven times harder to get to trial than a one-defendant indictment because people get sick, they have problems with lawyers, they want to file various motions. And so if you can focus on the one, the statute of limitations gives Jack Smith time to go back and indict the others later if he wants to, to indict them in a superseding indictment. But this way he can just keep the heat on for a speedy trial that can be resolved before November 2024. So I, I was surprised, but I think it's a stroke of genius. Can I just say, Barb, that I totally agree with your assessment that this is a speedy trial move. And I'm also curious about whether any of the six are cooperating. And my focus is that last one, right? The first yep. five, we know who they are. Number six, not clear. I wonder if it could be Michael Roman, this guy we've talked about on the podcast oh. before. He's a political operative. He was running day of operations stuff for the election. There had been speculation that after a, a very dry performance in front of the January 6th committee that he might be cooperating. And because he was accompanying Trump throughout the day and was there afterwards, there's yeah. some stuff he could really shed light on if he's now a cooperator. I think that's a good that's a good guess, Joyce. I was leaning toward uh, Steve Bannon, but I think that that might be right. One thing that I will say that the the internet sleuthing that's pointing to Jenny Thomas, please, she wishes oh. she were that connected. <laughs> yeah, it's I mean, not it's that Thomas. important. Bless her, her heart. Bless her heart. Boris <laughs> Epstein. You don't think it's him? I've heard no way. It could be him. He's in the. I don't think so because uh. he is a lawyer, and they went out of yeah. their way oh, to say the lawyer. Yes, I agree. And said so political I operative. Just, I, yep. He's he's not a political operative. I think that's a good point. And he's the one who caused some of Trump's lawyers to quit in his defense because they didn't like working with him as a lawyer. So I don't think it's him, but I do think it's curious that they went out of their way to give clues that made one through five clearly yep. identifiable so and went out of their way to make sure you didn't know who six was, yes. yeah. which leads to me thinking yeah. that Joyce's theory that he's a mm -hmm. co-op, he or she mm -hmm. is a cooperator is a real possibility. Oh, that's a good theory, Joyce. I had so, thought about that. You know, my favorite one was number four, Jeffrey Bossert Clark, the, you know, anti-environmental lawyer who ran the, the Environments and National Resources Division at DOJ. Um, and I seriously, it was so clear it was him that I thought the last sentence was going to be, and his initials are yeah. JBC. <laughs> it, it, it rhymes with Schmeffrey Schmarf. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. All right. Well, I was going to add to this that the thing that stood out to me was some of the quotes. I mean, you know, the you're too honest, just a ton of quotes. Mm -hmm. But there was one where I hadn't heard it before. And I wrote in the margin of my, you know, indictment. Yikes. And that is paragraph 58 that says, I just talked to the gentleman who did that memo co-conspirator five, your favorite co-conspirator. His idea is basically that all of us, Georgia, Wisconsin, Arizona, Pennsylvania, et cetera, have our electors send in their votes, even though the votes aren't legal under federal law because they're not signed by the governor, so that members of Congress can fight about whether they should be counted on January 6th. They could potentially argue that they're not bound by federal law because they're Congress and they can make the law kind of wild and creative. So, I mean, it goes on from there. And I just, I mean, I read that and I went, oh my God, this stuff is in writing and there they are. It's just, it's outrageous. But okay, let's move to round two. And um, round two is 
tell me something that you thought was very well done. And Barb, you've already said one thing you think is well done, but you'll have to think of another one. Or something that was omitted that you expected to be included. And, and Joyce, you may have given a clue on what you think on that one. In this interference with the election indictment, or maybe you can talk about something in the arraignment. And I'll just give a quick answer this time as the first one to speak, which is I thought it was really brilliant to call him defendant throughout this indictment and to call his co-conspirators, co-conspirators, one, two, three, four, six, um, because by the time you read a few pages of it, you no longer thought of him as Donald Trump. You thought of him as defendant. And then they did the same thing, like they called um, one of the memos, the Wisconsin memo that morphed into the fraudulent electors memo. So I, I really thought that was really clever drafting because it really put you in the mindset of these are crooks and criminals. So um, let's see, Kim, you went first last time. So um, how about Joyce? You want to go first this time or second this time? Well, I'll tell you something that I think is particularly well done. And this sort of piggybacks on what Kim was saying about the fourth count um, in the indictment, the civil rights conspiracy. I'm really a huge fan of that count. You know, the first time we focused on that for real was when Donald Trump himself uh, announced that he was going to be charged with a civil rights conspiracy. And we were all trying to figure out, okay, we read the statute it could go a lot of different ways. There could be a lot of different theories. And the theory that that this special counsel team landed on, um, I think, is brilliant in this sense. It tells a story about what Donald Trump did that should be very personal to every American, because this is a conspiracy to deny you of your right to vote, you know, not just if you voted for Joe Biden, but all of us collectively, because the agreement that we have with each other is this collective notion that as Americans, we vote for the candidate of our choice, and then we accept the result and move on. That's what Donald Trump kept this country from doing. It is very personal. And I think as the case progresses, this will help some of the people who are fence sitters, some of the people who've disengaged because they're overwhelmed by just his massive criminality. You know, I'm the eternal optimist here who believes that people can re-engage, that the Trump fever dream can break. And I think the way this charge is positioned is one of the paths forward for us as a country. So I I agree with you that it was a violation of everyone's rights, but it was particularly pointed at Black and Brown voters because they knew that they would have a strong turnout on election night, and that would be one of the biggest obstacles to Donald Trump pulling out another victory. So I think it's important to remember both things. So look, let's just be honest about what this is all about. The reason that a big part of the country is still behind this guy who's a rapist, who has committed horrible crimes against the Constitution, who's a grifter, it is about race. It is about concerns about the shifting demographic in this country. It's about the possibility that black and brown people will have more political power. And it's all exemplified in the way Trump handles the election, trying to deprive the new majority in this country of voting rights. I mean, I think that this is so perfectly on brand for Trump and, and his base. Kim, I think everyone's going to agree that your interpretation of what Joyce said is so moving and so terrifying that we need to all be cognizant of it. But I want to add another thing to something that I thought of when Joyce was talking. The way it's drafted that count makes all of us, every single American, a victim of the crime. Yep. And that is a great reason for a camera in that courtroom. It must be televised because victims have a right to see the trial. And we are all victims. So I am hoping that there are going to be uh, some changes to the rules of cameras so that we can have a live broadcast of this trial. And can I talk about what I think was omitted? Because I think it's related. Um, sure. I, I don't think I was expecting it, but one thing that I was disappointed that was omitted was a seditious conspiracy charge that would have expressly tied Trump to what the Oath Keepers and uh, the Proud Boys did in their convictions. 
that would have made Trump a part of that conspiracy because they were, because they were. Again, this is the Ku Klux Klan Act and they were acting as the modern Ku Klux Klan. And so for Trump to not also be charged with seditious conspiracy to draw that through line, I was very disappointed in. But what do you think was the evidence that showed Trump intended the use of force? I mean, do you think the evidence is there? Will be wild. Like, well, how about know, the, don't the take whole, away the magnetometers? They aren't after right, me. Right. They're after the he people knew that at the they Capitol. Were armed. So I understand why this. Listen, I, I, like I said, I wasn't expecting it because I understand that trying to base any evidence on the rally would have caused challenge, First Amendment challenges that would have delayed everything. I get it. I understand. But it was a conspiracy. Like the Proud Boys were a part of this story. And in his trial, they won't be. And that for, for history, for posterity, is an, this is a speaking indictment, but it doesn't speak about everything. And, and so it would have been great if that could have been a part of it. Right. But I do I do agree with, with Joyce's question, which is to the extent that this was drafted, as we said, with one in, one defendant to get to trial speedily, I know. that would have definitely, definitely delayed it. So what I about know. you, Barb, in round two? What was either well done or omitted? Yeah, I would say omitted. You know, I, things I was looking for was like Kim's seditious conspiracy or inciting insurrection or even what Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren referred to as the big ripoff. You know, using these false claims to raise money. Yes. Um, yeah. But uh, I, I think this is probably the kind of uh, modest yet sweeping indictment that is going to do the job. I mean, like you, I would love to see Jack Smith make that connection between the people who attacked the Capitol, the seditious conspirators, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, and that Willard Hotel uh, war room. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I feel like there's more to, 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 to learn there, but, you know, in the absence of overwhelming evidence, I think that it was wise not to charge those things. Believe me, as someone who has lost a seditious conspiracy case, I know mm. how hard it can be to prove those. And so I think, um, not swinging for the fences, not including a seditious conspiracy count where, you know, maybe there is a first amendment defense that will slow things down, not including the kitchen sink. Um, I think it was well done because I think that a conviction on the indictment as charged, you know, conspiracy to defraud the United States, obstruction of an official proceeding and deprivation of rights. Those are very serious charges. And if, if he's convicted of those things, then we're done. Like that's, that is victory. And so to go for the home run, especially if you miss or if you delay the trial, I think that would have hampered things. So I think this was an example of a just right modest indictment, but it does include facts from A to Z that happened from November of, of, of 2020 all the way through January 7th, 2021. Right. And, and I think that they did a really good job of learning what most prosecutors or many prosecutors forget, which is that sometimes enough is sufficient. Mm-hmm. They had exactly what they needed. So let's go to the final round. Something that Trump and or his lawyers said that shocked or angered you and um, let's see, Barb, you haven't gone first, so why don't you go first this time? Well, I think the one that is getting my goat the most is this idea that Donald Trump, his First Amendment rights are being violated. And he had an absolute First Amendment right to say the things he said. If you look at the indictment itself on page one, it said, of course, he had a right to proclaim even falsely that he had won the election. But this goes well beyond this. this his charges use that lie and then operationalize it. Um, by doing things like trying to organize false slates of electors and trying to get the Justice Department to, to lie that they have found irregularities to get Georgia to reconvene its legislature by asking Rust, uh, uh, Rusty Bowers to reconvene the legislature in Arizona to submit alternate slates, pressuring Brad Raffensperger in Georgia, you know, all of those things. Yes, they do involve speech, but it goes back to this idea that your right to free speech, like all rights, is not absolute. Um, conspiracy, every conspiracy involves speech, right? It's an agreement. Every threat involves speech. When you extort somebody, that involves speech. Um, I had a friend say, if, if this is all about speech, then what Osama bin Laden did on, on January 11th was only about speech. Like, no, you know, you, you can't use speech as a weapon. And so that one is one you're hearing a lot of talking points and supporters say, and it's just not, it's just not valid. Maybe, you know, maybe it flies on, on in the media, but it's not going to fly in court. And 
Joyce, what do you want to add to that? So, you know, my outrage was Trump's lawyer, John Loro, on national TV last night, trying to explain that all the man wanted was a 10-day pause so that they could check the... And I'm like screaming at the television, it's a coup! It's an effing coup! Um, You know, I'm so frustrated by the way Trump's behavior gets normalized through repetition. And what's Mm -hmm. outrageous at first becomes acceptable. And I think that we're at a moment in this country where we need to, I'm just going to try to say this politely, stop the normalization. I get that these guys are defense lawyers and they have a a job to do, and I don't grudge them that. But I think our job is to um, restore what my good friend Barb McQuaid would talk about as being accurate information, not misinformation or disinformation. Thank you. I hope, I hope the bar authorities are just paying close attention because making false public statements <laughs> violates sure. most ethics rules for the attorneys that we take of the oath that we take. So, and Kim, why don't you go ahead and add yours and I'll go last. Okay. So it's everything that Trump has said, right? Because here's the thing at the end of the day, you either, you have to believe one or two things, that he knew the election, that he lost the election, And he lied and, you know, spurred a coup because he lost the election or that he genuinely did not know that he lost this election. If it's the if it's the if it's the former, he's a criminal. If it's the latter, he's an idiot. Either way, he is unfit for the presidency. (laughs) So this is so clear to me that I cannot believe he is even polling above 3% because either way, he can't be president, no matter which one you believe, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I just want to pull my hair out at this point. (laughs) Please don't. It It looks too good. Don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) So I had so much trouble picking something to say in this round because I had two pages of notes of things that outraged me, um, both by Trump, his continuing attacks on the prosecutors and repeating lies that are alleged in the indictment as knowingly false, and which I think could actually lead to the violation of his release plan. Because if you remember, the magistrate said to him, you cannot commit any more crimes or you will be taken into custody. And so I think he's committing additional crimes. He's threatening the prosecutor. He's threatening the prosecutor's wife. He, he took a, 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 you know, he attacked her. He said that the Department of Justice was weaponized against him and, you know, went on and on. But I'm going to turn to really the attorneys who have brazenly made false statements and that I think do cross the line of what is in their role as a defense lawyer. So aside from the free speech one that Joyce has already mentioned, his lawyers are claiming that the Speedy Trial Act is only for the benefit of the defendant. Excuse me, but who doesn't know that the government is protected by that as well? Witnesses die, memories fade. The people are entitled to a speedy trial. So that one really, really uh, got to me. And and the, his... his um, Speedy trial arguments are so ridiculous that the government took three years to investigate this, so we should have three years. Well, you have the person who did it. You know everything there is to know. Excuse me. Well, he's presumed innocent, so I don't know that that works. Oh, yeah. don't have the same... This, the, the two things are apples and oranges, right? We're not asking yeah, you to investigate. No. Well, but they also the have, remember, yourself. all of this is public information. The January 6th committee published a report where there's nothing that's not going to be pretty much there. Yes, they need time. They don't need a year or two. They need to address this and treat it like it is required under the uh, Speedy Trial Act. And I mean, I could go on and on on this one, but I, I'm... I, I'm not going to. I mean, it's just, as I say, there's two pages of things that I could say, and maybe I'll write something about it because I was so completely outraged by him. It was that was ridiculous. so dumb. And even if it worked that way, and it doesn't, um, Jack Smith was appointed in November. It was not three years They can't ago. even count. I mean, they can't count. How are they going to defend this guy? 
Oh, God, I think that's a good place to end this conversation because enough is sometimes sufficient, even though we could go on forever. (laughs) Don't play with your food. Eat it. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. August marks the beginning of what is known as the red zone, and it's nothing good. It's the period between August and November when rates of sexual violence at colleges and universities are the highest, and survivor advocates have decried the fact that yet another school year is about to begin under Trump-era Title IX rules, which dramatically changed the way school officials handle sexual abuse and harassment claims. So, Barb, I want to go to you first. Remind our listeners of how Title IX applies in cases of alleged campus sexual assault and how that rule changed during the Trump administration? Well, Title IX is the law that was passed in 1972 to provide for equal uh, rights in education. And it's been applied uh, to say you can't discriminate on the basis of sex. And that includes things like sex discrimination, sexual harassment, sexual assault. All of those things get rolled into the Title IX protections. Um, and during the Obama administration, a lot of changes were made to make it uh, easier for people to report uh, and make the process more comfortable for the survivors of a sexual assault. In the Trump administration, we saw that switch back, treating it much more like a criminal charge and increasing the due process rights for the accused. And although, you know, certainly if you care about uh, due process, um, it makes sense, but it raised the stakes. And because this isn't a criminal case, I think many people thought that changing these rules were misguided. You know, for example, you have to show clear and convincing evidence instead of a preponderance of the evidence that the assailant uh, committed the, this uh, sexual assault. Um, it requires the uh, accuser to be subjected to cross-examination, which I think is something that deters a lot of people from going forward. So this switch in the landscape to make it more difficult for a survivor and to increase protections for the accused and make it much more akin to a criminal case, I think is what changed the landscape and has made it, uh, you know, just much less comfortable for accusers to come forward. And Joyce, we we talk a lot here about the importance of due process, right? So why do you think activists, uh, sexual abuse survivor advocates, are so unhappy with this Trump-era policy and that it hasn't been changed? Yeah, Barb really touched on this. It's the bounce back between the Obama administration and the Trump administration, where Betsy DeVos, the Secretary of Education, was just not a friend to women students. Um, under, under the policies that went into place during the Trump administration, student survivors experience punishment, retaliation. They have forced leaves of absence. Many of them end up transferring schools or dropping out. Um, because schools are able to shirk their responsibilities and the victims are the ones who aren't getting due process in, in this regime. Um, it has always been a complicated process, to be fair. But the Trump administration expanded protections for students accused of sexual assault and it allows colleges to largely ignore the complaints. One of the results of that is this just bizarre situation where it can actually be quicker for victims to go into the criminal justice system than to ask for a remedy under Title IX. Um, So it is a due process issue. And the Trump rules raised the burden of proof for someone who's seeking to establish campus sexual assault. Virtually, Title IX investigators have to have a video or an audio taped recording of a confession before they'll move forward under these laws. Um, Change is 
long overdue, and it's time to uh, get off the stick by the administration. Yeah, it's really amazing because just in researching this topic, I think I Googled, you know, something like Title IX sexual assault and all of these news stories came up from colleges from coast to coast about people who had been, uh, who alleged that they were um, sexually harassed or sexually attacked on campus and off. Title IX in some circumstances, it can also apply off campus if it's a campus event. Um, and that they just had no way of getting um, of getting any satisfaction that they could not even get um, adjudication off the ground, that they're still forced to go to school with uh, their alleged attackers. And just like Joyce said, it can have terrible consequences. And just this past week, there was a story in the Boston Globe about students um, at Harvard and BU who they actually got criminal convictions against these people and the Title IX process still had not um, provided any satisfaction. I mean, it's really in- incredible to think about. So Jill, at the, at, at the bottom, Title IX, as Barb pointed out, is a gender equality statute. And although sexual assault happens to people of every gender, women are overwhelmingly at a higher risk. In fact, college women are three times more likely than average to be sexually assaulted. So why do you think the Biden administration, who's the, the Biden administration said, we're going to change this. They said they were going to announce the, they announced the rule last year. They said they were going to implement it in May. And then they're like, wait a minute. No, we need more time. And they still haven't done it yet. What do you think the holdup is here? Well, they are saying that the holdup is that they got so much public input when they released these new rules that they needed the time to absorb them and analyze them and respond to them. The problem is, as you started this with the red zone, that happens August, September, October, and November. And the new release date is October, which means that they will not be in effect for this school year's uh, heavy sexual assault. And to repeat something that Joyce said, it's a very complex issue um, I today spoke with the former president of Governor State University, Elaine Mammon, to talk about how, in her experience, it had handled. And I also looked at this uh, as part of an Obama-appointed committee looking at sexual assault in the military, a Pentagon committee. And it's a, a hard line to draw between protecting victims' rights and ensuring that there's due process for the defendant. But when you can go to court and get a conviction faster, and when under the Trump rules, that conviction does not assure that you will have any response from the school, you know that the rules need to be changed. Right now, after conviction in a court, a student goes to the university and says, please punish the student, and they say, no, the rules say we have to do an independent, separate investigation, which re-victimizes the victim. It's a waste of time, and if you had under the standard of proof that a trial means, which is beyond a reasonable doubt, there's no reason why a university can't use that. And so I think that that needs to be built in It would be different if you get an acquittal. That doesn't mean you can't have a separate investigation at the college because the acquittal could be based on, you know, as in the E. Jean Carroll case, the definition of rape. And even though we all would understand it as rape, it's not technically within the rape statute, but it could be the kind of violation of community standards. You know, we talked earlier about college campuses and they are communities and they have community standards and students are held to account for violating those standards. So I'm going to take the Trump administration, I'm sorry, the Biden administration at its word and agree that they needed to really analyze all of the comments they got, but it can't happen soon enough to protect the victims of this growing problem of sexual assault. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. 
LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Well, shocker, Alabama is not satisfied with its near-total abortion ban. Now it wants to tell people when they can get abortions out of state. And, you know, I thought that our um, deviation here from talking about Trump would be uplifting, but we've gone from problems with Title IX to something that I think is, is really problematic. And so I would underscore the point that Trump is a problem, but problems brought on by some of the shift the country has experienced under Trump, they aren't going anywhere. So with apologies, we'll focus on this issue. Um, Jill, earlier this week, the ACLU actually sued Alabama's Attorney General Steve Marshall over his approach to uh, enforcing the ban in Alabama, and then a second lawsuit was filed. What's the controversy about? Your Attorney General, lucky you, said that he was going to start using an 1896 law to punish people for conspiring in the state to get services that are legally available in another state in the context of abortion. He said, if you're agreeing in my state to let someone go out of state to get an abortion where it is legal, then I'm going to hold you responsible here. And so there are actually two lawsuits, as you said, one from the ACLU and one from a funding organization called Yellow Hammer Fund. And they are both suing for pre-enforcement because it hasn't been enforced yet. It's just that he said out loud that he was going to start doing it and that people are now afraid to give advice to a patient who comes to them that they feel is medically necessary, that it's a violation of their First Amendment right, but it's also a violation of doctors' obligation to give the kind of care that patients deserve. And it's on the threat that your attorney general has made to use this law uh, to start punishing people for giving uh, help to getting out of state and to violating everyone's right to travel interstate. You know, I mean, it's sort of the classic um, situation for pre-enforcement challenges because the threats chill exercise of rights. It'll be interesting to see how the court addresses the standing issues. But like you say, Jill, two different lawsuits, one from two women's health care providers who no longer provide abortion services. All that they're doing is talking with um, their pregnant patients about their options. And then the Yellowhammer Fund, which helped to fund out-of-state travel because very often it's poor people or people with less access to the resources to travel out-of-state. And even folks who are just giving advice over the phone or in, ver- in person are worried that they'll now be subject to criminal charges as co-conspirators or accessories for even saying, you know, if you still want to obtain abortion services, they're perfectly legal in California. So it it's really um, doesn't look good on its face. But Barb, my question for you is maybe this is okay? I mean, can Alabama or any other state for that matter tell people what they can and can't do outside of that state's borders? Can it impact their right to travel freely? What are the constitutional issues that we're looking at here? Yeah, I don't think so. You know, of course, this has never been tested in court. And so until it is, it's not quite clear. But there is this constitutional right to travel. It goes all the way back to 1867, and it's been upheld. And so, um, you know, courts, uh, I think, typically are of the view that imposing a ban on travel, whether it's to get an abortion or for other reasons, would be unconstitutional. And in fact, anticipating this argument in Dobbs, uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh actually wrote in his concurrence that uh, a state may not bar a resident from traveling to another state to obtain an abortion. And so he's on record at least saying that, of course, it's dicta because it was not part of the decision in that case. And so I think there's at least a strong argument that even he would support that would say, no, you can't. There's also this 
clause in the Constitution, this is going to make you shudder from law school, known as the Dormant Commerce Clause. Oh. Remember that? I know there's the Commerce Clause. But the, I've tried to forget God, it. What is that? It's like when Matt started talking about imaginary numbers. The what? A dormant Commerce Clause. But basically, it's the federal government that gets to regulate commerce between and among the states. And so uh, states are really not supposed to intrude in that area of interfering with what other states are doing. And each state is its own separate sovereign. So this idea of, you know, preventing somebody from doing something that affects commerce in another state is also, I think, possibly a violation of this dormant commerce clause. So I think it's unconstitutional, but it's but Barbara, in, in that sense, won't people just say, well, then we just need a federal abortion ban, and then that takes care of the yeah. dormant commerce oh, yeah, clause maybe, maybe so. Yes, it's fascinating because I think that's what led to this approach by Alabama and other states. They realized that a national abortion ban wasn't palatable, but they may just shoehorn themselves um, back into it with this. Well, Kim, what are the larger implications of this move by Alabama? Alabama's not alone among states in trying to ban out-of-state activity. You know, my big fear has always been that these sort of issues about interstate travel would arrive at the court cloaked in abortion, where the court always seems to have special jurisprudence. I mean, I would just be certain that we would all have a right to travel out of state and do whatever, right? I mean, you can go to Colorado and and smoke weed if you're from Alabama. Um, But I, I do have real concerns because the court has a special jurisprudence when it comes to abortion. What do you think we're facing here? Yeah, I mean, I don't trust the court. I think I've said this before <laughs> on this, and despite, you know, whatever Dicta Kavanaugh included uh, in this and other cases, I still think that there could be five justices that could rule something awful. And because we are talking about the need for reproductive health care, which is very which is very um, time-specific, right? It's not like if somebody needs this care, they can wait for an appeal process to happen. And already, just today, I saw a study by uh, Washington State University that without any of these travel bans, right, just with the, the abortion bans that are already in place at this moment, 41% of women of reproductive age would have to drive at least 30 minutes to reach an abortion care facility, and 29% would have to drive 60 minutes, and a quarter have to drive 90 minutes or more just to access it. That's not even counting all the pending abortion bans or increased restrictions that are set to go into place, which could raise that number up into the 40s in terms of people who would have to travel 90 minutes or more. Imagine how uh, the lack of access that would be included if there's also a threat of either civil or criminal penalty for leaving the state to access this care. We are talking about real people. We are talking about people who can be having a host of complications, who are not just, uh, again, I think there's still this narrative that this is uh, irresponsible people using abortions as birth control. It's not. These are real lives at stake. And I just can't imagine uh, if this were allowed to happen. And even if it's challenged and the Supreme Court says, no, you can't do that, I worry about all of the lives that will be threatened in the meantime. And now comes the part of the show that we like the best, where we answer your questions. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or thread or tweet us using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye on our threads feeds throughout the week, where we'll answer as many of your questions as we can. So our first question comes to us from Kathy, who asks, does Donald Trump have to register as a sex offender following the E. Jean Carroll result? And if not, why not? So I'll take that one, Barb. The answer, unfortunately, is no. That was a civil case. Although he was found uh, responsible for sexual assault, he was not convicted of a crime. So he will not have to register as a sexual offender, at least not on those charges. All right, our next question comes to us from MG. Jill, let me direct this one to you. If Fonnie Willis uses the same details and charges in her indictment as Jack Smith 
uses in his election interference case. Can it be considered double jeopardy? Short answer, MG, is no, because it's a different sovereign and it's a different law. So she will be prosecuting under Georgia law, whereas Jack Smith is prosecuting under federal law. And yes, I do expect that her indictment will overlap in the facts and witnesses with what Jack Smith has alleged in his indictment, but it will not be double jeopardy. And it's important because if her case goes to trial and he's convicted, he cannot pardon himself if in the horrible event that he should be reelected, he becomes president. He cannot use his pardon power for himself, nor can any other Trump-like successor do that. And neither can Governor Kemp because the governor of Georgia does not have pardon power. It's vested in a separate independent committee. All right. And our third question comes from Ann Monroe, 4336. Kim, what do you think about this one? Do you think the lawsuit against Harvard about legacy admissions will actually be successful? Many schools are eliminating them voluntarily, but I think the lawsuit is important, not only for Harvard, but for other similar schools. Will it work? Yeah, the answer, Anne, is I don't know, and I fear that it won't. Um, what the affirmative action case really did uh, in striking down the consideration of race is I think it really eroded something that is called disparate impact claims, which is you're not looking at race um purposefully, but it is having an effect of uh, denying people of admission due to their race. The, the way that that was worded, I think that that is in peril, and that is the theory that this case would have to rely upon. And again, I don't trust the Supreme Court, so I have a feeling that it may not be successful. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Kimberly Atkins Store, Joyce Vance, Jill Weinbanks, and me, Barb McQuaid. And remember, you can send your questions to us by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag SistersInLaw. Please support this week's sponsors, Aura, Calm, and Osea Malibu. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they really help make this show happen. And go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our shirts, totes, and other goodies. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag SistersInLaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps others to find the show. See you next week with another episode, hashtag sisters in law. I don't know about you, but after Trump's arraignment, I'm going to start reporting my age as 5'8". I'm just going to say I'm 5'8", because people might misunderstand and think I'm talking about my height. You'll never convince anyone of that. (laughs) No one is going to think you're 5'8". I'm sorry. I am a tall one. Not unless you wear my shoes. No. (laughs) (laughs) Kim's not in shoes.